0: Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. What a difference an election makes, or at least that's the hope. It's as if the world has been holding its breath and now, after no shortage of political drama, Joe Biden has emerged as the new president of the United States. Why is that important? Because the world is suffering environmentally, socially, and economically. The US can't change all that, but it does bode well for a new era of greater international cooperation. As the world's second-largest polluter and the single-largest economy, the U.S. is instrumental if any progress is to be made. Its track record on the environment, however, is less than inspiring. When things got messy some 40 years ago, exporting the problem seemed like a good idea. From the 1980s onward, U.S. industrialists sent their polluting problems overseas, with China as a favorite destination. Trump's four-year war on the environment hasn't helped. What we're left with is lost time and little action. Biden hopes to change all this. In his first act as president, he says he'll submit an executive order and rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. It's a good start, no doubt, but environmental degradation is only the tip of the iceberg. There are other problems at home and abroad. Race and gender inequality, income inequity, labor unrest, and a push for profits at all costs all require renewed time and attention. Some like to say capitalism is the cause. But capitalism is a system, not the culprit. Corporations, on the other hand, play upon that system, and it's fair to say that both companies and governments have taken liberties in recent years, oftentimes in the interest of short-term financial or political gain. Our planet has reached a breaking point, and thanks to a wellspring of activist investors and an increasingly well-informed consumer class, pressure is mounting for governments and companies alike to drive, change, or lose favor. In this episode of Inside Asia, I speak with two global specialists in the field of ESG. That stands for Environment, Social, and Corporate Governance. It's catching on now more than ever as our dance with disaster draws closer and the private sector is being called upon to do more. Ian Donald is U.S. and Canada Country Manager for Control Risks. Silky Goldberg is a partner with London-based law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. They joined me in a recent live discussion organized by Get Global. If you're a CEO, CFO, or hold any C-suite position within your organization, this episode of Inside Asia is meant for you. Here's our discussion. With me today, uh, two fabulous speakers. Uh, I have Ian Donald, who is a U.S. and Canada country manager for Control Risks. specialized risk consultancy with offices worldwide. And I also have Silke Goldberg, who is uh, a partner with the law firm Herbert, Smith, and Freehills. Uh, I'm uh, the founder of Inside Asia Advisors and host of the Inside Asia podcast. Uh, I also serve as the director of the Asia Corporate Leadership Council and have spent 32 years in Asia. Um, I'm uh, normally Singapore-based, but currently in the U.S., Ian is coming to us from New York, and Soke is in London. We want to frame this subject um, and start with what is ESG for anybody who doesn't know or just has a vague understanding. And we also want to understand what it is not. So perhaps uh, just to get this kicked off, Ian, you might just introduce that for us. Would you mind?
1: Sure. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, Yeah, I think ESG is just this enormous subject and i think sometimes the you know the enormity of the subject is in itself what causes organizations and individuals you know challenges in, in thinking about how, how to kind of grapple with it what does it mean for us how do we actually practically do something with some of these values you know you hear about it talked as kind of um, corporate philanthropy is it csr you know what what is it and honestly it's multi-dimensional from from my- it's kind of all of these things. It's part strategy. It's part business operations. It's uh, it's it's certainly a philosophy, but it's also risk and compliance. Um, it's also you know new business, new investment decisions. And I think if you look at ESG through just one of those kind of optics, that's when you're going to get overwhelmed by the enormity. Of- well, would it be
0: too simple to say it's a new way of doing business?
1: I think it is. I think it is a new way of oh, a new way of doing business. Um, I mean, it's it's not new. New. It's been in evolution for at least a couple of decades in different forms. But nowadays, I think it touches on every aspect of uh, of doing business. And you know, I may be so bold as to say, and I've, I've heard this a lot in in sort of similar kind of talks. Is there room in the future for your kind of chief ESG officer, just as we saw chief risk officers arrive? And you know, is is it so inherent to every part of a business function that it needs a leadership role at the top mm. level attached to it?
0: Oftentimes, Ian, people associate it with sustainability or environmental protection. At least that's oftentimes Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing when I speak with clients. Um, But it's so much more than that, isn't it? So you had your chief sustainability officers, for instance, who came in to review a company's uh, carbon footprint and how they were engaging and what they could be doing differently. But then ESG basically extended or expanded on that. Um, Could you talk about the E uh, or, or the S and the G as well? Oh, sorry, the e, S and the G. Go ahead, all three, yeah. if you want. Mario. Yeah, well,
1: sure. Look, look, I mean, if we look at if we look at kind of existential existential issues for all of us on the planet, the E the E stands out uh, arguably above above all, but the S and the G are uh, um, uh, are nearly as important, I would say, and also probably the areas where um, most organizations have the greatest opportunity to make a meaningful difference. Of course, mm. one can make a Huge meaningful difference in the environmental side of things, but sometimes I think it, it does, because it's, this, it's such a huge issue um, and there has been so much put out about it, it, it may eclipse the S and the G sometimes, but it's also the S and the G where we see, I think, some of the more, the more recent advances made. Um, I mean, I think we, we'll probably unpack uh, the S and the G in detail and the rest of the yeah. I think that's where we have our greatest immediate um, advances to make.
0: Right. And like you say, this has been these issues have been percolating about for, you know, quite a while, going back to the mid nineteen nineties, even earlier. Um, you know, with the launch of uh uh, some books that were addressing some of the big environmental climate change issues that were coming our way. Um, last year, in August last year, the Business Roundtable in the U.S. Uh, issued a statement uh, uh, which basically said um, the purpose of the corporation isn't just to pr- pr- profit for the shareholders, is to support and to work on behalf of all stakeholders. That was a monumental moment. Uh, I think in the U.S. at least, recognition that investors and customers and employees and others were all asking for change and they were recognizing that. Um, But before we go there, I also want to get a European perspective and and a little bit from you, Silke, about I know the Europeans have at least the impression I have is they've been a little further ahead of the game than the Americans and the North Americans on this. Could you tell us about how it's uh, transpired in the EU?
2: Sure. ESG in Europe is one of the biggest topics in boardrooms, in conferences, in their, uh, professional service firms. And this is because so from a legal perspective and from a, from a European legal perspective in particular, because Europe is a cusp of mo- at the cusp of moving ESG out of soft law. So non-enforceable voluntary codes of some kind, which might be demanded by non-governmental organizations or stakeholder organizations. And it's on the cusp of being being moved into mandatory law, slowly but surely. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, the European Union has just uh, um, uh, published and uh, adopted the EU taxonomy on ESG, clarifying what is actually the E in investments, and who who wants, for instance, to issue a bond in the European Union, a financial service product. who is able to stick the label ESG on it? Can you do that if you have um, a certain type of energy mix or what type of energy are you able to call ESG without seeing yourself accused of greenwashing? So we're seeing sort of that sort of trend. And also what we're seeing increasingly is companies taking it very seriously. We have many more companies now who actually want to come and issue sustainability reports, um, climate change reports. And this is where we see the E, the S, and the G being linked up. So, for instance, in England, we have an increased um, development of director's duties being tied to climate change. And So if a company makes an investment, How can directors make their statutory statements about their director's duty, having absolved their director's duties uh, dutifully, and um, in which way is that documented, and how does the company then portray that um, outside? So the G, the governance element, is incredibly uh, important here as well in that context. The S part, on the more social part, this is something where in uh, in Europe we've long talked about um, having a social license to operate. This comes, of course, from the extractive communities um, elsewhere and internationally. So I don't think this is any particular European thing. This is in an international, if not global thing. However, um, we have a lot more actual legislation in this space. So in terms of both um, employee protection, but also um, matters such as uh, modern trafficking, human trafficking, modern slavery act in many different ways and, and jurisdictions in the, in the UK, we have similar initiatives in, in France and in Germany as well. I'm going to pause here. hmm,
0: Yeah, where is the pressure coming from? Why are these changes occurring? Is it in the DNA of some of the countries within the EU to create these protections and safeguards and and, and advocate uh, for these stakeholders? Or is there new and a different type of pressure coming from investor groups or others uh, that are saying, no, change is essential?
2: I think it's a little bit of all of it. So we have seen, for instance, very large uh, state investor groups, such as the Norwegian State Pension Fund, who is actively campaigning for certain types of changes that go indefinitely, let's sit very firmly in the ESG camp. But we've also seen um, NGOs or um, stakeholders share activists. Um, We regularly see uh, in Europe, in AGMs, Activist shareholders getting up and demanding to be heard on issues such as climate change um, uh, and other aspects of um, that are important to them, sort of important to them. So, and increasingly, we've seen two ways that companies can deal with that. So, either companies say. We don't want these type of resolutions and they're being blocked, which sometimes may lead to the fact that these companies get picked up by NGOs in turn and being told, "Uh aha, they're not transparent. There is an issue here. They try to hide a particular issue or companies are saying, um, Okay, come on board, sort of demonstrate your, sort of show your resolution, and then it will get either adopted or not. Mm. Um, so, um, quite different attitudes across the board and uh, sort of um, in, in different organizations. But it's sort of a we see a societal shift. It's not one particular type of stakeholder who demands the change. Um, to give you another example, we're seeing more and more employees. Also having a view about how their company should position itself. So Ian has talked about the corporate purpose, and that really is something that employees sort of it really sort of um, uh, that str- rings, strings a chord with many employees, and they want to work for a good purpose. And uh, employees who work or feel that they're working for a good purpose are more better motivated employees, I guess.
0: Ian, why do companies need to get on board with this? Those that are on the fence and, and haven't committed, what's at stake?
1: Well, I mean, just bouncing off the, the last point that Silky made, I think there's, um, there has been a sea change in kind of employee expectations of what, you know, how a, how a business should be accountable, how the company that they work for should be accountable. Um, in addition to the wider market and customer expectations over the last decade. So I mean, so put simply, you know, basic functionality is at, is at stake in a lot of these organizations, and that's starting to become quite apparent. I think we saw sort of employee engagement and, and expectation on these issues most apparent in the last three to four years through prominent movements like uh, responses to hashtag me too and of of course the different ways of black lives matter not to say that it didn't it didn't sort of predate those those movements but um, but these have been the most sort of prominent examples of, of employee noise around this so there's a sort of a basic talent retention and sort of functional company operations dimension to it as well but I think there's also a growing body of of evidence and an analysis to suggest that there are real tangible bottom line implications and impacts both of, of getting this right uh, in, in a positive sense and also of, of getting it wrong uh, and I think you know the literature and the evidence around um, the bottom negative bottom line impacts to, to sort of negative corporate social impact has been around a little bit longer but we're starting to see um, plenty of evidence that Sustainable value based investments made by organizations and and organizations that are run in a conscientious ESG centric manner actually also outperform their peers. So there's a real, there's a really sort of tangible dollar sum attached to this now.
0: You mentioned getting it right and getting it wrong. How hard is it to get this right? How detailed, measuring you know this it's one thing to state a commitment or create this kind of view in the marketplace that you're prepared to make fundamental changes but measuring and accounting for that is a whole different thing where do you where do you come in in the work you do um and and why is it important to get this right up front
1: yeah well firstly i would say that from, from a measurement point of view it's much easier to measure the wrong than it is to to measure the right the wrong yeah. Tends to be quite visible, and it tends to be acutely visible in high-risk industries. Um, but there have been advances, and there continue to be a lot of positive advances in in, in the ability to measure the you know the positive advances in in, in ESG. You, know, you from a, if you look at diversity, for example, you can you can easily measure gains made either by a single organisation or by um, say, for example, a private investor in advancing um, you know diversity across the management structure either of their company or their portfolio company so recently Carlisle group came out and said that they they plan to have 30% diversity of the boards in their portfolio companies by 2023 now that's easily easily measurable and don't need a lot of technology to do that um, and they have also been more thinking about more on the scientific measurement side of things There have been Playing plenty of advantages in recent years around um, or advances in measurement of things like carbon footprint to an increasingly precise level, uh, measurement of water usage by an organization. So there's a lot, of, there's improvement in the ability to measure the positive impacts, but, but I, I, I sort of still look back at the, the negative. I mean, at control risk, we do look at it as a very much a two sided coin. In order to get the ESG conundrum right, one has to be conscious of an organization's negative social impacts just as much as it, as it is of its aspirations to have positive social impacts. We sadly, we've made sometimes become known as the bad news factory over the years. I think it's in the title right, Control Risks, but um, we, we spend quite a lot of time helping organizations, particularly in high risk sectors, map out what the, neg- what the negative social uh, and governance impacts in particular.
0: Well, you know, we do live in an era of social media and I do see lots of examples of where corporations have been motivated out of fear of, of being caught out or, or being caught. I think there was an example with Burberry's uh, a couple of years ago where uh, they were caught incinerating in China, you know, um, stockpiles of clothing, just freshly manufactured, manufactured clothing. And as a result, there was this uproar uh, from, from social media saying, how could an organization who declares itself this way and then behaves that way, and it to a massive reform um, of of everything they were doing. Another example is is uh, Ben & Jerry's when acquired by Unilever. Uh, you know they thought, well, there goes Ben and & Jerry's and all their sustainable ideas and and you know ESG goals, which is you know quite liberal uh, and ahead of their time. Quite the contrary. Uh, you know, the whole Ben and Jerry's philosophy of how to operate is now driven right th- through the Unilever and it's 21 different divisions. And it's basically part of the DNA now uh, of, of Unilever. So we, we do see both positive and negative examples of why people embrace uh, ESG. Um, what are the differences you know, between Europe and the U.S. on this, if there are any? Uh, so, OK, what would you say?
2: First of all, social media, of course, to to, uh, come in on that last example, Uh, social media are global. So if a European company were to get it wrong, uh, that would be known uh, or European brand gets it wrong. That's very quickly known globally. So you can't stop that uh, in the same way. It's very difficult to um, uh, to manage this elsewhere uh, geographically. Um, I think. Uh, what has happened in europe the whole esg and sort of the um the investment into esg or the various aspects of it uh, ian mentioned diversity um has has started in the public sector in in originally in europe but it has very quickly sort of gained pace and getting it wrong is um i would say is a business risk in the same way as it is is a business risk to get your accounting wrong mm. so um, also that you may be precluded from getting certain type of work D- just to give you an example so sort if of, as a partner in a law firm i regularly go and pitch for work and they are um, sort of for projects uh, with a team and uh, very regularly sort of clients will ask so what are your diversity statistics how do you deal with any any type of um, diversity and uh, um th- what is your statistics in terms of uh, gender balance ethnic diversity and um, uh, what is your policy on LGBT plus? Uh, and the terminology may be slightly different in North America, but basically these are categories and um, uh, diversity issues that clients care about and they might not wish to engage with. A-
0: as uh, a prerequisite to you absolutely. actually then being able to pitch it. Fascinating. Interesting. Okay.
2: Yeah. So uh, it's important and uh, likewise supply chain. So because of some of the the legislation that I mentioned earlier, so for instance, um, um, let's say modern slavery act, uh, so this is anti-human trafficking and sort of, uh, of checking that uh, minimum wage is observed. Sort of many jurisdictions in Europe have a minimum rate, wage threshold. And to make that transparent and uh, uh, to need to demonstrate that in order to able to deal with certain companies, in particular, the large FTSE 100 companies have such requirements and they will not deal with companies that don't comply.
0: Okay. All right, great. Ian, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean,
1: I think um, Silky highlighted in speaking about Europe, really the key difference between Europe and and the US journey in this regard is the involvement and engagement of government and the public sector here. You know, we've all been, you know, large corporations, whether they be European or, or, or North American, have been engaged in this sort of this journey for over 20 years now. It's been the same journey we've all been, sort of looking at the same um, frameworks and uh, and, and the evolution of those frameworks, the big difference is is in where government fits into the equation. I think if you look at that journey through the US lens, you know, the, the move from starting to gain an awareness that is important to identify and report on negative social impacts towards, you know, the other end of the spectrum, which is understanding really... Uh, businesses can be a mechanism for social good and that being that mechanism for social good is not in opposition to fiduciary goals or profit profit goals. You know, I do genuinely believe and particularly in the last few years that the the needle has moved in the US context, um, moving it towards the latter end of that spectrum. But we spent a long, long time and it, it was actually slower progress than in Europe. We spent a lot of time... I guess, acknowledging those negative impacts of of, of negative um, ESG performance um, and focusing on them. So you saw a lot of attention on things like the voluntary principles and security and human rights, the extractive sector, Um, briefly but loudly. There was a lot of noise around the global network initiative, around privacy for technology firms. You know, these were all the frameworks which helped to, uh, you know, quantify the negative impacts of these in these sort of high-risk areas, depending on your, you know, your ESG theme. Um, and they were also the frameworks where they came equipped. The frameworks themselves and the organizations pushed out quite a lot of practical guidance on how to actually implement and do certain things within an organization. Whereas broader frameworks, um, you know, the, the early PRI. And some of those other broader business frameworks were good at identifying the issues and helping organizations become attuned to them, but took a little bit longer to come along with practical guidance. And, and I think that's, that's kind of been the US journey. The one thing that has been missing, as I say, is the, the sort of the governmental, the public sector oversight and visibility, visibility into that. I'd say the thing I think that's moved the needle in the last few years in addition to social media, which I think has moved the needle everywhere, uh, is is the involvement of the financial community. So I right. started to see it with uh, institutional investor pressure on their GPs. As that picked up, that became became more widespread within the GPs, and then you know, then now you have GPs exercising this in portfolio companies. And I think that's really been the key.
0: The key yeah. GPs. They're seeing a lot of that. In fact, I think just a couple of days ago, uh, Procter and Gamble's shareholders, 67 uh, percent, voted and said we want absolute reform in terms of packaging and production. And we want guidelines set and we want to see results. And some of the largest stakeholders are those those GPs and the pension funds and others. So you do see pressure that you might not have expected. And I guess that's something that's good news uh, coming from uh, from from the financial sector, that, that there is that kind of pressure and, and, they, and, and companies are responding. Um, I, I will add on Asia just to kind of fill out the global view where we're trailing. Uh, in, in Asia, I think in many ways it's lagging, and it's probably commensurate with the idea that the more developed a market is, the more in, inclined they are to kind of embrace and adopt some of these new ESG guidelines. I think, uh, with the exception of Australia, Singapore, and Hong Kong, uh, you find it in many ways it's just a new concept. It's coming to fruition. Um, there is interest and curiosity about it, if only because they know that some of those big multinationals are going to begin imposing some of the different controls and some of the different challenges on, you know, their suppliers and vendors and manufacturers, and therefore they're going to be need to adapt and adjust to that. So we see that kind of, uh, you know, toggling going on right now. Um, but for the most part, you know, Australia is off the charts when it comes to, and New Zealand, as you might imagine, with environmental issues and sustainability and, and all things, employee issues are very big in places like Thailand and Indonesia, uh, where, where employee rights, employee wellness and benefits uh um, are finally gaining some voice, whereas before they were kind of buried in the middle of, you know, somewhere way past and beyond profits. Um, so, you know, that that's a, that, that is, a, and speaking of profits, um, one of the biggest misnomers out there is, and, and the question that we get all the time is, can purpose and profit coexist? Uh, what would you all say? So, okay, what, what's your view on that?
2: I think we increasingly in a world that if a company is unable to define its purpose very clearly, the profits will become more difficult to achieve as well. Yeah. Um, for some of the reasons that we've already discussed, that employees will be engaged in a completely different way if there is a positive corporate purpose. Um, you will not be able to operate as a company if you don't observe certain ESG standards. Certainly in Europe, that will become extremely difficult uh, over time, as we see the sort of as we see the ESG standards that's moving from uh, voluntary standards to contractualized, for instance, we had that with the equator principles in the financial sector, which you already mentioned, um, to ultimately having legislation in this space. So I don't think not only is profit and purpose not an exclusionary sort of contradiction, but I think uh, profit will ultimately be furthered and be conditional upon having a, a positive purpose.
1: That's great. Ian, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd agree with that 100. I mean, mm. as Tilke mentioned, right, as we were saying, right, right back at the beginning as well. You know, this is about is your company functioning properly, mm. um, both from the point of view of your customers and external stakeholders as well as your internal stakeholders. You know, and I also think there are some interesting evolutions occurring, um, which I think will shine a, a brighter light on this as as they evolve and we get more data from them, um, including particularly from the financial sector. So, for example, the advent of ESG-linked loans, I think that market at the end of last year was about $71 billion. That doubled in 12 months. So we're talking here financial instruments, companies can get access to them, um, and the loan rate is variable based on uh, sort of performance indicators against ESG criteria. Mm. So yeah, you know, you have financial institutions really... In principle, um, when when the access to this expands, in principle, getting behind, really getting behind um, their words on this one, uh, and you can you can start to see you know real fiscal improvements in an organisation as they start to perform against Ei, ESG, criteria. So quite, quite a novel concept, and we'll, we'll see if it gains real traction.
0: You, you know, I, I, can, I can imagine the response from CEOs and CFOs out there saying, Oh my God one more level of compliance of of validation of governance i mean with all the reporting requirements and everything um you know many of them are starting to say how you know what is required and and yet I think in some ways it's unavoidable by virtue of the fact that there's greater transparency into the heartbeat of organizations than ever before, whether it's technology or whether it's social media or whether it's kind of shareholder activism. Uh, there's, there's so much that it can no longer be uh, c- uh, contained or kept from the public view. It's almost like you better get ahead of it because if you don't, it's going to bite you in the butt. And oh. I, that, that's, that's the feeling I get. What, what do you all think? Well, I, yes, I think exactly. I, Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah, good yeah, response. Go so, yeah, okay. What do you say? Yeah. yeah good. It
2: completely agree and um yeah. Ian's idea I sort of um I like the idea of the chief ESG officer sort of mm. and, and then when I think a bit more about it I, I think yes that's great but at the same time ESG is not a single sort of thing that somebody can take care of it needs to become a completely integral 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 part really of what companies yeah. are doing so completely agree um the uh, additional administration in the reporting and then there's scrutiny about the reporting and then the reporting standards rise all the time I get that. But at the same time, the transparency required and transparency is really the prerequisite to make Mm. good decisions and to enable investors, enable stakeholders to um, to form a view about a company, about their performance and uh, perhaps also investment decisions. It's absolutely necessary.
0: Yeah, it's not unlike the chief digital officer during the digital transformation phase, right, where remember it was thrown to marketing in the beginning and said, well, I don't know what it is, but you handle it. And of course it failed Mm -hmm. and they had to realize it needs to permeate and every aspect of the organization income chief digital officers, they had a time and a place, and many of them are now fading away because they transitioned a group. I mean, this is what I see, and it's it's a great idea, actually, is to to somebody who come in and actually guide that, almost like a project manager. What's your view, Ian? What would that look like, you know, in in terms of your world and the clients that you work with?
1: So, I mean, I think, yeah, so the the concept of, yeah, the chief ESG officer, I guess, yeah, would almost recognize that it is cross-functional, right, that it sits it is, I guess, it is its own thing in a narrow sense, but it is also in a much broader sense something that requires a cross-disciplinary management team. It touches on everything from HR to finance, business operations, strategy. You need, you, know, you need, you need, you need somebody to corral that cross cross-disciplinary group to to make sure that how ESG impacts their function is uh, is considered and taken care of. Um, so yeah, I think it is. I think it is. It's a, a project manager, whether it's a permanent. Phase, you know who, uh, who, who knows. One thing I did want to point out, I guess, it also in relationship with the last few comments about um, the reporting requirements, um, which I, I totally agree. As I can imagine, the advent of the concept of an ESG-linked loan is likely to bring a kind of, you know, a groan from across the sort of executive suite potentially. And I doubt that it was a an intended goal of, of the person that invented that instrument. But think about it. Most organizations struggle with data in some way, shape, or form. The okay. One bit of most organizations that has probably the best, maybe not the perfect, but the best handle on data is the finance organization. Mm-hmm. Now, up until this point, ESG, as we've said, in its in worst case, tends to get thrown to one person to do its half of the job. Um, and many times that person is resource constrained and maybe historically has struggled to get buy-in, struggled to get that cross-disciplinary leadership. Uh, collaboration. But if you bring the finance organization into the reporting requirements and, you know, because it is a mandate of the loan and the, you know, and the the cost of the loan to report on it accurately, I suspect most organizations would see an immediate step change in the quality of the data.
0: You know, on top of these issues, of course, then comes COVID, a major crisis. And I was wondering to what degree you feel that um, the changes that have occurred or, or the ESG momentum has been curtailed or accelerated by virtue of this crisis. Okay.
2: Well there was a moment probably in about sort of late March when the lockdowns started to happen in Europe, that there was a fear that climate change might go sort of, um, play second fiddled if you wish to cover the immediate COVID response or that indeed ESG which has built su- such huge momentum in Europe might not be um, you know front page perhaps and perhaps for a week or so that was the case however in Europe we've seen a discourse around build back better So um, having the discourse and the idea that when all of this is over, when the vaccines, when the um, medication is found or whatever other solution might be out there, then – that it is a task of everybody to build an economy and build society better than it was before. So not going back to 2019, but on the basis of ESG, uh, incorporating that in business in a much greater way. Today, when I talk to clients, ESG and climate change in this sort of area are probably the top issues people want to discuss in Europe.
0: Share with everyone the Build Back Better, its origins, where it came from, where it's headed. What's your what's your view?
2: Um, Build Back Better, I think it started in various uh, European newspapers um, discussing um, when it became clear that COVID wasn't going to go away after a two week lockdown. Um, in Europe and that we would be in here for the long uh, for the long haul at the same time it became clear that there was a a huge economic impact in Europe governments have tried to stem that economic impact with various sort of support schemes anything from furlough schemes to protect uh, jobs or to sort of uh, um, grants or loans to businesses and at the same time it was clear that these are short-term measures so the long-term measures, how do we create a, an economy and a society that is able to literally sustain itself post-COVID, that became the discourse. And um, because uh, it, was, it, it was clear that sort of the issues that we had let's say, in 2019, to draw a line between uh, sort of a more sort of a timeline there, a calendar line, um, in relation to climate change, in relation to um, uh, uh, diversity. And all of those issues, they would not go away. And if we left them to fester behind um, COVID, the, the immediate COVID response, those issues would be exacerbated and there would be more to deal with after after COVID, effectively, so this is really something we've I've seen it in um, the vast majority of European jurisdictions now. Hmm.
0: Ian, in the US, we are mired in a political quagmire right now. Um, and it feels like there is really not a lot of clarity on these subjects. In fact, it seems to be sidelined in so many ways. Uh, yet you can't deny some of the economics of what's going on. I mean, solar power is now <laughs> definitively one of the most cost effective means of generating energy. And uh, it's taken a while to get there, but here we go. And, um, you know, there are other ele- elements of, you know, the ESG world, which starting to, whether Black Lives Matter, it's created this whole greater awareness around you know, social justice and, and equality. Um, it, it feels like, by virtue of the crisis, it's stirring up some of the issues which are most relevant and pertinent to the effective delivery of ESG. What's your take on it?
1: I think, um, yeah. I mean, there are a few things in there. I, I was watching uh, Mad Money. I think uh, the uh, I think probably two days after the, reco- the immediate recovery in the market, or was that back in back in May? um it was they described it as the biggest wealth transfer in american history as you saw the market cover but yet so many people laid off i think it's it's the broad-based nature of this um that has really brought it home to people and brought home the the issues of, of, of values and, and corporate accountability um you know i think you know, we're seeing organizations, it's become very apparent. So you, you oh, rewind, you used to have a situation where if you were an employer in one of these classic company towns, sort of Hershey, Pennsylvania, somewhere like that, where you, you, know, you knew you were the main employer and therefore there was a sort of a written in inherent accountability to, you know, make sure that you, you continue to look after the health of that, of that community, of that town. And I think those are kind of unusual examples um, you know, common at one point in history, but kind of unusual nowadays. I think this has almost brought that sensitivity back to the employer. I think for sure, in you know, talking about how, what, you know, what were the immediate impacts of COVID on, on, on ESG awareness, I think in, in the first couple of weeks, as Silkis says, it was enormously distracting. And I think that most organizations below a certain massive scale spent most of their time thinking about survival, about how to keep enough cash running through the business. Mm-hmm. Um, but very swiftly afterwards, almost all organizations started to think about not just their employees, but they started to have a wider perspective on the, you know, what their employees' employment meant for the, for the wider community. So I think despite all this noise at the top uh, in politics, and despite what is arguably true to be this biggest wealth transfer um, in, you know, in American history, as you look at the broad mass of American businesses, that focus on employees, that focus on community has been quite prominent in business decisions.
0: Yeah, I mean, we we've seen moments in history where, uh, whatever at Vietnam War or or whether it's uh, you know the the energy crisis or whatnot, where you know there's a coming together, a reevaluation of what's important. That feels like one of those moments right now. I'm, I'm I'm now rereading um, the Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. It was first published in 1994 and revised in 2010. And at one point, he references uh, Gordon Sherman, who's the founder of Midas Mufflers. Uh, at some point uh, in the mid 1970s made a rather prophetic statement uh, saying and, and I want to quote this, um, we spend our lives evading our own redemption And this is a na- and this is naturally so because something is to us is, knows that to be fully human we must experience pain and loss. Therefore we are at the ceaseless effort to elude this high cost, Whatever the price, until at last it overtakes us. And then, in spite of ourselves, we realize our humanity. We are put in worthier possession of our souls. Then we look back and know that even our grief contained our blessing. I just thought those are amazing words, right? From from you know, a, a, a commercial icon who was basically saying. We reach a point where we've overextended, we've truly pushed the edge of the envelope as far as it can go. We arrive at a crisis point, whether economic, health, whatever the case may be, political, and we need to fundamentally reevaluate. And for me, the exciting moment with ESG is the opportunity that exists for corporations to lead this change. Governments are overwhelmed with just managing their, 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 their core requirements, Companies seem to me to be the ones that can are in the best position to make a difference. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And and, and am I overly optimistic, or are, is this just a moment in time? Or are we going to, you know, is it going to falter because of all of the other challenges that we now have around us? Okay.
2: I think it's clear that we are at a moment of profound transition. I don't think going back to 2019, even with a time turner or a time machine, is an option mm. uh, in terms of how we do society, how we do business in society. So and the other part is that um, really the COVID crisis has in many parts of the world, um, I've seen it here in England, but elsewhere as well, um, has brought communities together in a mm. different way. So people have reached out, looked after another and sort of the community spirit and purpose that has been engendered by that uh, should not be underestimated. Um, estimated, and that also has an impact on what, uh, as a society, we want our our companies, businesses, how we want them to function. And um, therefore, businesses have a huge opportunity to step in and lead, Um, whether or not there is the legislative impetus, or or whether it is just uh, uh, by their own motivation or motivation of their stakeholders. At the same time, it shouldn't be underestimated. Many businesses are also undergoing a huge amount of economic pain at the moment.
1: Yeah, Ian, what would you think? I could I couldn't agree more. I mean, and I think um, while disenchantment with the political systems and classes is by no means um, confined to the U.S., this has been a a ten year plus uh, process. Arguably, most of the of the early literature about this came out after the global financial crisis. So we we you know we live in a moment when there's an unprecedented level of disenchantment with the political classes. And arguably businesses, if if they get it right, and I think this is part of the, the ESG question, if they get it right, businesses have far more influence over a far larger group of people, more, more directly um, through their management, through through the, you know, the degree to which they look after their employees and the broader community and the style of that management. I think the interesting thing in the US, um, in, in addition to there being a particularly fraught political environment right now, is, is also the twin crises or the multiple plethora of crises however you want to describe it that we're going through right now the the explosion of uh, the, the second larger weight larger wave of the black lives matter movement in and the you know the instability on the streets which is now rolling into electoral election related instability and we, we hope not beyond November but realistically quite probably beyond <laughs> November lay it over. The, you know, the acute conditions of the crisis mean that um, you know, employee, employee groups are, uh, I wouldn't, traumatized may sound like it's overplaying it slightly, but there is a level of trauma. I think most businesses would recognize in their employees, there is a level of uncertainty and consternation that they've never, they've never seen before. So that the premium on getting it right to a business, particularly in the US right now, um, is extremely high, but also the benefits of getting it right. are are outsized. That's great. You know, I want
0: to talk a little bit about, you know, um, what it takes uh, again, again, revisit this a little bit, because again, you know, people tend to think of this as a luxury or resource rich organizations are in a better position to be able to do this. Um, Yet, you know, groups like B Corp, who have done a fabulous job at appealing to primarily Silicon Valley or startup organizations where founders feel very strongly about these issues and therefore are prepared uh, to go through a certification process in order to really shine on all fronts and and, and come up with these reports. It's much easier for a B Corp and a startup to do that than for a large multinational organization with multiple divisions and all kinds of other reporting requirements and legacy issues. Um, So the argument goes, um, you know, you all both work primarily, I suspect, with large corporations what are some of the, or maybe not, I, I'd love to hear that. Sorry, I, I made an assumption. But what, what are some of the issues you're seeing with the larger corporations? Um, and, and what are some of the points to resist or counter your encouragement for them to think about this or go down this path? Ian, what would you say?
1: Uh, there's, a, there's a lot there. Um, I think that, so, so firstly, I'll, I'll, I'll say, I think the biggest challenge is potentially for organizations that are sitting in the middle of the market, I'll unpack that a little bit. Um, looking at the the largest end first, um, and I was speaking to uh, the chair of, of controllers, a lady called Irene Dorner. I Talking to her the other day, she sits on a number of the boards of a number of UK and European companies, and she was recounting the experience of one of these board meetings of w- w- one company that shall remain nameless, but it was just they were talking about the enormity of the issues, the scale of ESG, the number of issues, the scale of that organisation, and um, uh, you know, and all of the different ways it could have impact, positive and negative, was, was causing a degree of paralysis. And I think her, her guidance, which was wise, was you've got to focus and set priorities and you've got to cut through. Don't try and boil the ocean. And I think there are a number of ways, even in a very large organization, you can, you can try and not boil the ocean, right? I think it, ultimately it comes down to strategic impact assessment, you're going to need to do one systematically go through the organization, look at what it's doing, what is its function, where is it exposed, what's it invested in, where are the geographies, and what are the what are the full scale of risks that it could be influencing, positive and negative. Understand the really negative ones, understand where remediation may need to be put in place, but also understand the really positive ones. Where can that organization have the best chance for really positive impact. And then therefore, where does the positive impact intersect with its best chance for making the best money? Because that most likely is, you know, once you've identified how you can mitigate the worst negative impacts and you've identified where your best positive impacts intersect with your profit motive, you've probably got a, a, a not too bad, you know, not too dusty short list of things to yeah. go after. On the small end of things, I think you're right. Steve, I think I think that small organizations, very small, particularly startups, have a nimbleness potentially that allows them to build this stuff into their DNA from the outset. Yeah. I think challenges in the middle. Middle market organizations, they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to commit resources to this. They, you know, it's tough for them to get the critical mass, and you do need the critical mass and you need to sustain it in order to have some positive output. I think there's a survey recently that said that one third of middle market managers will admit to not being sufficiently educated themselves on ESG to be able to measure their own organization's performance. And that's that that's where the challenges are, I
0: think. Well, Might they be pushed into it kicking and screaming? In other words, to the degree that they are reliant on, you know, purchases from larger organizations. Yes uh if they might just need to co- find ways and means of complying. Is there any role for government support, subsidies, uh, training, development, or uh at least in North America, is that is that just not an option?
1: Yeah, I think I think there's there's definitely always a role for it. Um I'll I'll be candidates so I think in well in the US, Canada's a different Canada's a very different different picture with a different set of attitudes towards I think in the US a good first step would be having government a bit more involved in, in the issue itself. Right. I mean, just starting with a forum to, to really get the transparency into it coming mm-hmm. from the U.S. government would be a good start. I think subsidies, etc. you know, um, a concerted effort in that regard is maybe a little bit further down the line.
0: Mm-hmm. So Kate, okay, what, what would you say? What, what's your view on this?
2: I think, <clears throat> I think in Europe there's a clear recognition that large companies have different types of resources tools at their disposal so and that is recognized by legislators as well so for instance yeah. at EU level we have something called the non-financial disclosure directive um, typically long long-winded name basically a directive which is applicable to all 27 EU member states and which uh, obligates member states to put in place legislation for large public interest entities with more than 500 employees so that's mm. a certain threshold to disclose a whole range of esg related matters sort of ranging from social responsibility anti-bribery and corruption diversity on boards environmental matters uh, etc that covers that particular directive alone covers about six thousand large companies and groups across the european union so but there's also a clear recognition that smaller companies might not have the resources and it sort of it would be an unnecessary burden perhaps to do sort of do To put that disclosure obligation on them at the same time, Europe has a long-standing tradition of small and middle-sized enterprises. So, for instance, in Germany, there is something called the Mittelstand, so the mid-layer of companies, which is actually the vast majority of German companies, and they have completely different um, opportunities, for instance, to engage with their stakeholders they might often be local but also sort of um, uh, or they might uh, have completely different opportunities to engage with their employees that a very large company that is listed on the european stock exchange might not have simply because the organizational ways and um are so large and so distant um at the same time uh, even mittelstand So small and medium-sized enterprises that reach out beyond their own jurisdiction or their own region will need to comply ultimately with some of these issues because a lot of certainly the European legislation uh, in relation, let's say, the EU taxonomy um, will apply to anybody who invests into the European Union. Or as uh, Ian and Steve, you already said, um, companies that want to be part of supply chains of larger companies will ultimately need to comply with a certain level of ESG scrutiny. And ESG Mm -hmm. may, of of course, take many different forms. The other thing I would say, ESG or environmental law for that purpose is contagious Uh, in the same sense that if a standard is being set in legislation in one jurisdiction, let's say by the European Union, and because that standard is outward reaching. So people who want to invest into the European Union will have to comply with it, even if perhaps they're normally um, uh, headquartered in Chicago or in, in Singapore um that means that regulators and legislators elsewhere will start to start to take note and uh, because it might be a competitive advantage or disadvantage if you don't have those standards
0: yeah, you know, it's fascinating hearing the way both of you describe this because I, I'm I'm hearing you know this word compliance you know in Europe right compliance whereas in in the U.S. it's kind of litigious it's a little bit like well risk associated and there are expectations and you know you could fall into a bad situation if you don't I, I guess that's kind of how both economies were built uh, and on the back of these different kind of um, basis of, of what it is to basically operate. Uh, and therefore, you know, however you get there, it, it shouldn't really matter. Whereas Asia was well, such a hodgepodge anyway. We've got from Japan to Indonesia, you know, you can't even put a label on it. Uh, everyone's making it up as they go. And I think embracing it when it serves their interests at this stage. But it's it's uh, I guess the point we're, we're all making is that, you know, it, it is a train that's left the station. There is momentum. Um, there's lots of pressure points coming up from customers and employees on one end to investors uh you know and and governments on the other and therefore you know you'd better get on board with this pretty soon what would you all say for people out there who are you know trying to gather a better understanding what's a good starting point to figure figure out you know where to begin what resources or site or organization might help them ground themselves in these issues and prepare for these challenges ian
1: Um. If you're looking at, if you looking for one place to go, that probably get you to quite a few other places. Particularly if you're, you know, say you are working in management of of a of a, a fast growing company that's looking to try and build some of this stuff into both your strategy as well as how you look at, you know, new investments. I'd say you go to the PRI website, the Principles of Responsible Investment. It's it's comprehensive. It's quite practical um msci as well not a, not a bad place to go um i mean honestly for a foundational view on i guess the philosophy behind a lot of this stuff taking a look at the um 2011 um un guiding principles the rugby principles pretty good place to to get up to speed on the the logic and and to look at that clear delineation between what is the what is the government responsibility what is the corporations responsibility and how and how do they sort of interplay between each other okay great so
0: okay any thoughts resources
2: There are just so many out there, just so many different ESG standards. So, agreed. Start with the six uh, PRI principles. Have a look at uh, the European Union, uh, sort of the Commission's website. They have a lot of material about the taxonomy, the non-financial disclosure directive. Um, uh, By all means, reach out, have a chat. Uh, Very happy to talk you, sort of uh, uh, completely free and uh, no obligation uh, through those issues. Uh, In fact, it's uh, something that we do quite a lot uh, with people at the moment and uh, just uh, get stuck in. uh, There
0: it is. That's the,
2: the most important part.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I asked that question because there does seem to be such an enormous wealth of information out there, but it can be a little bit uh, overwhelming and even misleading in some cases. Um, I I think many, from what I see from a measurement perspective, uh, lots of organizations are building a frame around the UN SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which are, uh, uh, you know, a, a good starting point and a nice visual representation of what it entails and what areas are covered or not covered um, and and so I guess there there are and and again same for all of us anybody on the call feel free to reach out. Uh, and ask us well, where, where you might go. We'd be happy to, happy to guide you on that. We have just a few minutes left, but I wonder if uh, you would both you know, maybe um, summarize kind of your view on this uh, in terms of what you do or where you think the focus should be or what you want to leave behind for our participants. So, Kay, would you like to begin?
2: All right, that's quite a challenge. Yeah.
0: Yes, in I two think... minutes or less, right?
2: Okay, in two minutes or less. <laughs> um, ESG, I think, is the future. And this is ultimately, this is about sustainability. It has many different strands that sort of climate change comes into it. um, uh, Social responsibility comes in. stakeholder management, environmental issues, uh, but also good business uh, practices in relation to anti-bribery, anti-corruption, but also diversity. It's incredibly important. And without it, ultimately, I think um, companies will, will struggle in future. ESG is the future. Come and join the come and join the future.
0: I like that. Call to action. Well done. Yeah.
1: Ian? Yeah, I'd echo that. I think it's the future. I do think as you said, Steve, at the beginning, it is a new way of doing business. I think it touches on all business functions. So don't look at it, don't look at it too narrowly through your business, but also don't get caught out by getting overwhelmed by the breadth of it. Also looking at impact, practical impact, positive and negative of the organization, of your organization, understanding who your stakeholders are and how they are impacted is critical to all of it. If you just run it through that lens, you will end up with a short list of the most important things to focus on. Um, I think that, uh, to what just said, ESG can be used as a framework for a lot of other things, actually. And Increasingly, as we're working with clients to do diligence on new acquisitions, for example, or look at their own overall profile, we found ESG to be a great framework for hanging all kinds of other diligence activities off. Both, obviously, anti-corruption, anti-bribery, and corruption, but also regulatory risk, political risk. Um, you know, it can it can all fit quite neatly into an ESG framework. And in fact, the other day, for one of one of our larger private investment clients, we basically took all of the non-financial diligence in an entire diligence process and wrapped it up in a in an ESG framework and just yeah. took, just ran it, ran it like that, bringing in people to focus on the various different specialist elements. And it, it worked really well. Yeah. What
0: one sidebar on that that I heard? Um, a lot of the startups that are looking to be acquired are going through this certification process because lo and behold, it raises their valuation. And why? Because there's greater transparency. Yeah. You have access and insight to an organization in ways you otherwise couldn't traditionally. And it's giving these startups a bump. So it's it's a good you know message to the private equity VC community out there. Encourage. Your investee companies to go down this path, uh, due diligence should include, you know, an ESG wrap because uh, it gets these these kinds of results. So I think it's it's a, it's a it's really important that you pointed that out. Um, listen, I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on and joining the conversation, and you've added so much value. Um, I'm sure there will be opportunities to connect with uh, the participants in other ways, uh, and I wish you both a great day. Thanks for joining. That was my conversation with Ian Donald and Silke Goldberg. Where's your organization with respect to ESG compliance? Want to know more? Contact us at www.insideasiaadvisors.com. Or if you're an Asia-based CEO and want to take your organization to the next level, consider joining the Asia Corporate Leadership Council. Inside Asia, in partnership with the Conference Board and the Center for Creative Leadership, are unpacking what it takes to make corporate purpose and ESG compliance a reality, generating ongoing insights and conducting research throughout the region. Contact us to learn more. My thanks to Get Global for permission to repurpose my discussion for Inside Asia's listeners. And as always, we do thank you for listening.